<clears throat> so is this quorum? I'll start. This is sponsored by. Um, yeah, so this is. I'll go ahead and start. This is COPD and update, and uh, I came up with this like an hour ago. Guidelines are good, but sometimes stupid. Um, that'll make more sense later, I guess. So the objectives here are to uh, give a little background on COPD, um, trying not to overlap too much with the, the COPD lectures that we've had about a thousand times, and go over a few landmark articles, not to swamp us, but to just point out some uh, key ones. Um, and then to go over the new-ish new gold classification strategy and, and the guidelines to initial therapy that are outlined in that, um, in that guideline. And then to bring in some issues in prognostication and transplant at the end, because that's near and dear to my heart. So this is one of the few recycled slides that I allowed in, uh, just to show that COPD is, is currently considered the third leading cause of death in the United States um, after diseases of the heart and cancer. The, the which? Oh, the codes, yeah. Well, I think these are ICD-9. So, <laughs> but you're right, it is 10, it's 10. Oh, yeah, yeah, so this is updated. Yeah, good, it's not outdated at all. So the economic burden to COPD is, is big, and that's, and that's why a disease that, um, that we see so frequently is, is so important, really. Um, the, the estimated direct costs are almost $30 billion annually in the U.S. alone. Um, indirect costs are estimated to be around uh, 20 billion, um, and those, that, even that is thought likely to underrepresent the true costs of of, um, uh, of of the disease because there are people that are missing work to take care of other people, and and the the web of interrelated economic burden uh, spans out from there. Billions of dollars. I forgot I put that in there. <laughs> All right, so. The complications of COPD and acute COPD exacerbation is, is more emphasized in the, in the gold updates, uh, and there's a reason for it. The reason for it is that most of the economic burden uh, is really stemming from COPD exacerbations, and, and COPD exacerbations are also very significant events in the life of a COPD patient. They're, the definition is something that's a little ambiguous. The, the gold definition I think is probably your best one. It's an acute event characterized by worsening of the patient's respiratory symptoms beyond normal day-to-day -day variation leads to a change in medication. And that's a pretty good definition. The CCRN, um, uh, which is a, a body that I'm a part of, is uh, defines it a little differently. And even within the CCRN, the COPD Clinical Research Network, um, this definition has been argued back and forth. Should we stick with this? We don't like it. But we used it before, let's stick with it because of that, and then that's how it's going to be continued in the future is, is rather than change a bad definition, we're just going to continue because it's similar to the old. Um, and a lot of people get cantankerous about the three-day requirement, that it has to have three days of requiring treatment with antibiotic persistent steroids. Um, and responsible for the bulk of COPD costs, COPD exacerbation, it's also considered a trajectory modifying event. So patients who get COPD exacerbations are more likely to go on and get more COPD exacerbations. Those who get severe exacerbations are more likely to die. Uh, so it, it, it's, it is a very important thing. 
and we'll go over a few landmark studies, and you'll probably understand why once you see what they're all about. So the first one is ISOLD, which was platicasone versus placebo, and it was really looking at, uh, at the effects of giving the drug. Um, COPE was a study uh, that, that came out of a, a post hoc analysis of ISOLD, it's platicasone versus placebo, but this time looking at the effects of, of withholding the drug or stopping it. And then TORCH was a, a, a very important trial, salmeterol, platicasone, or combo versus placebo, so it really tried to tease out each individual component of, of the, the purple drug, whatever that is. Um, INSPIRE was salmeterol, uh, platicasone versus tiotropium, it was a head-to-head -head study. And then uplift was tiotropium versus placebo as an add-on therapy to baseline uh, treatments. So this is ISOLD. It was a study over 700 <coughs> patients were uh, were randomized to platicasone versus placebo, published in uh, around 2000. And what it showed was that inhaled corticosteroids in this population uh, were associated with lower rates of COPD exacerbation, and the p-value was significant. It was a, uh, probably a clinically significant reduction, you know, about a 30%, 33% reduction in rates of, uh, of event. Um, one thing to point out was that at the beginning of this study, the, the run-in phase, patients who were already on an inhaled steroid um, were, were washed out. They, their inhaled steroid was stopped and they were watched for eight weeks prior to being randomized to drug or not. And um, during that run-in period, and this publication actually came out before the, the ISOLD primary manuscript, what they showed was that during that eight-week period, uh, there were um, 272 participants studied, 160 of those had their inhaled corticosteroids stopped. Uh, and that was compared to the group that weren't on inhaled corticosteroid. And what they found was that the exacerbation rates were fairly different. If you had your steroids stopped, your rate of exacerbation during that eight-week period, which was actually a seven-week period because the first week was a, the period where they tapered you down and got you off the inhaled corticosteroid. Um, but the rate was 38% versus 6% in the ones who weren't on an inhaled corticosteroid at all. Um, they went ahead and continued this study uh, and um, thought that this was thought-provoking data. And um, it, it was followed up, you know, it wasn't randomized, so it was followed up by the COPE study. And what the COPE study was, was a study exactly to uh, address the question of whether stopping inhaled platicasone um, uh, was, was going to cause uh, a steroid or a COPD exacerbation. And what they did was they did a four-month run-in with the drug, so everybody was put on the steroid, and then six months of placebo versus continuation of inhaled corticosteroid. And what they found was that stopping an inhaled corticosteroid was associated with an increased risk of exacerbation. There's the Kaplan-Meier curve there. Um, so there's a little bit of a reason to be concerned about uh, using these using inhaled corticosteroids long-term and stopping them, and, and there does also seem to be a signal associated with reduced exacerbation. Um, so TORCH, TORCH came along and said, well, we have a lot more than just inhaled 
steroids to use. Let's look at uh, salmeterol inhaled reticosone and see if they work together. The purple, you can tell, is, is ADVAR-related on, on each of these uh, outcomes. So they looked at discontinuation of study drug, death from any cause, COPD-related death, health status, FEV1. The things that are probably the most interesting to look at here, you can tell that people knew that the placebo wasn't doing any good. The highest rates of discontinuation were with placebo, and the lowest rates were with the combination drug. Um, there was a little bit of a trend, a little signal here for um, all-cause mortality being highest in the fluticasone group. It didn't re reach statistical significance, but it did, you can see, uh, it did uh, outpace the uh, placebo a little bit. Um, and then the best outcomes were with the com combination, so salmeterol fluticasone combo uh, did look like there was some synergy, um, and the uh, probability of death was, was the notorious 0.052, so just, meet, just missing statistical significance if this had been uh, done a little differently. In fact, if their interim analysis had been handled differently, uh, they would have hit the uh, threshold for uh, survival advantage, and then we would all think of Advair as a, as a drug that saves lives, um, and it, you know, these data would suggest it, it probably does. Um, INSPIRE was a study comparing salmeterol fluticasone versus tiotropium, head-to-head, -head. and um, adherence was a lot better in the salmeterol fluticasone group than it was in the tiotropium group. Um, and exacerbation rates were about the same between the two. Uh, pneumonia rates were higher in, cell, in the salmeterol fluticasone, which actually echoed the post hoc analysis of TORCH as well. There are now uh, a number of trials all showing that you have higher rates of pneumonia associated with inhaled steroids. In none of those studies does that higher rate of pneumonia translate to a mortality issue. Um, and death, salmeterol fluticasone um, was a little bit better than the tiotropium in this study head-to-head. -head. Um, and you can see the probability of death there. Uh, uplift, here's a study. This was the addition. They said, okay, head-to-head, -head, eh, it might not be the right way to look at this anyway. Um, but how about uh, as an add-on, which is a, a kind of a useful clinical scenario to, to think about, if someone's already on um, a, a LABA inhaled corticosteroid combination, does the addition of a llama actually help them? And what they showed was that it, it does. In fact, two-thirds of these people were already on an inhaled corticosteroid lava combination, and, um, and the signal was quite robust. There is added advantage, um, and, and they showed it in a variety of ways. Um, here's the COPD exacerbation rate and the death from any cause Kaplan-Meier next to each other, and you can see that the hazard ratio for COPD exacerbation was a, was a 0.86, strong p-value due to the size of the study, um, and then death from any cause missed the, 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 the threshold for traditional statistical significance, it was 0.09, um, but certainly suggests some advantage here. Um, and then the next, the next piece of data. This is not a randomized controlled trial, but this is probably about as good as we have for this particular question. What they did was they took a post hoc analysis of the um, medical randomized arm of the NET trial, 
and they looked at 444 participants, and they did a propensity score matching to compare the long-term steroid versus uh, no steroid, and I'm talking about chronic oral steroid therapy uh, for, um, for patients with COPD. And what they found was uh, in, in non-prospective randomized, but in propensity uh, retrospective, a fairly robust signal for uh, more mortality associated with the long-term use of oral corticosteroids. So it's, it, it's hard to get a lot of enthusiasm for a randomized trial of oral steroids because they they're kind of seem like a bad idea. Um, but these are kind of the best data that we have to show that that is a bad idea. And so the take-home messages with the, the, the studies supporting it are as follows. The inhaled corticosteroid reduces exacerbation, withdrawal may trigger. Exacerbation reduction, the long-acting muscarinic antagonists seem to be better uh, than LAMAs. Uh, LAMA is about the same as the inhaled corticosteroid um, and LABA combination. That's from Inspire. We do see more pneumonia with the inhaled corticosteroids, but it doesn't really uh, translate to a, a, a bad signal for survival. And the LAMA is effective as an add-on therapy when you already have inhaled uh, uh, LABA and inhaled corticosteroid combinations. Avoid inhaled corticosteroid use alone. That was the signal from Torch. There's other uh, studies as well. And then the, uh, uh, and then the point to avoid chronic oral steroids is made as well from the net. This is the old approach, and this is probably what a lot of you are kind of familiar with. It looks like the asthma approach, uh, and this was the gold classification, the gold staging um, from many years ago that we used for many years. And many of you are familiar with it, but it's outdated, and we don't use this anymore. You shouldn't. Um, the gold uh, update, which says, do not, do not alter or reproduce. So here I am, reproducing it. Suck it, gold. <laughs> um, so they update this about every year, and it's actually a really good document. It's actually worth a read. Um, it's well written, well thought out, uh, and, um, and I think that it's, the people writing it are impressive as well. It's just a, a good writing committee. Um, and this is the new approach, and it's actually kind of elegant, it, and, and it takes a moment to take in, but once you really understand this, it makes a lot more sense for uh, the patients that we see. It breaks down patients with COPD into these four classifications, um, A, B, C, and D. And remember, the old staging system was entirely based on your FEV1, and that is still incorporated here, one, two, three, four. Um, and if you didn't like remembering the thresholds, it's real easy. Now, 50% FEV1 differentiates you between the top and the bottom half here, so that's all you need to remember now. Um, and, uh, and, and what they've seen is that in patients, there's a big scatter, but in patients who have an FEV1 under 50%, there's a higher likelihood of developing exacerbations and doing bad in the future. Similarly, one of the best, actually the best predictive uh, measure for developing exacerbations is the, a prior history of exacerbations. So risk is stratified both on the left and the right of this square. A lower FEV1 gets you higher risk. Similarly, uh, a higher rate of exacerbations or 
um, or more severe exacerbations gets you higher risk as well. So you need two, two or more uh, exacerbations or just one that requires a hospital admission puts you into a C or D category. Down here, differentiating A, C from B, D, the left to right, so we're talking columns now, um, is symptoms of breathlessness. And there's the CAT and the MMRC as measures of breathlessness. So this is how short of breath somebody is from the conditions of their lungs. So what is CAT? I, I give you a goofy picture here because I, I think CAT's a little, I, I'm not, it's, it's a little corny. Um, it's owned by Glasgow Smith Klein, and so um, you can't use it unless you're acknowledging them, I guess. Um, it, and, and if you recall, there's a five point, there's eight different, um, eight different modalities to, to assess, and each one can give you five points, and it only takes ten points before you're on the right-hand side of the gold classification anyway. It may be easier to just use uh, the MMRC. Uh, the CAT does have better predictive value and, and its, its utility is more robust, but MMRC is pretty good. And grade two gets you onto the right-hand side of that, uh, that gold classification. And it's easy to remember, I walk slower than people of the same age because I'm short of breath or have to stop for breath when walking at my own pace on a level. So if you just ask someone that, it's pretty easy to meet that criteria. And if you don't, you're, you're kind of in the A or C category. So once you've classified someone according to their degree of breathlessness and their risk, then you can put them in a box. And, and these are the first line recommended drug choices according to gold. And, um, and if you glance at that, you say, well, that kind of makes sense based on what I already showed you about those landmark articles. And that is the inhaled corticosteroid sort of shows up in the upper uh, rows, and that's because that it, the addition of inhaled corticosteroid has added value in reducing your likelihood of having an exacerbation. Um, and, uh, uh, and you can see that, that um, the and or, most of us are going to end up reaching for triple therapy when we have a, a gold class D. Um, this is my awkward transition slide. I wanted a, a, a <laughs> I wanted a nice segue into transplant, and I just couldn't couldn't really think of a good way to do it. Um, so I thought I'd just distract you and, and kind of pull the Johnny Cochran approach here. Um, wow, that's cool. Uh, so um, lung transplant, COPD and lung transplant are intimately tied. Um, in that, uh, that lung transplant um, is becoming more and more part of our, our pulmonary zeitgeist, I guess. And, uh, and you can see that of all indications for transplant that, that exists, COPD is responsible for the bulk of transplants historically. On an annual basis, interstitial lung disease has surpassed COPD uh, in the United States now, but still, historically speaking, COPD is number one. This green bar here is COPD, and then if you think of alpha-1 antitrypsin with the red and, and lump that in there, uh, those two are, are really the majority. Um, and here's survival after transplant for people who are transplanted with COPD, and what you can see is, is that depending on whether you get one or two lungs, and it's not a random thing, people that are sicker get uh, one lung rather than two. Uh, but you know, people can expect to live after transplant five, seven years, 50-50 chance of, of living at that point. Um, 
And that really brings into question, well, how do I predict whether that that survival is better than the survival that they would have had without a transplant? Because really, in, in transplant, what we ought to be thinking about is quality-adjusted life years added to a human being's life. And if we transplant people and shorten their lives, we're really not um, not doing them a favor. So there were guidelines that were written back in 2006 uh, by Dr. Orange across the street, um, and they really emphasized this Bode index. Uh, it said guidelines for referral is a Bode index of five, and guidelines for transplant Bode index of seven or or higher. And um, what is this mysterious Bode index? It's, I think most of us are, are probably fairly familiar with it, but it was this paper written in the New England Journal by Dr. Shelley and all. Um, and uh, Bode stands for body mass index, obstruction, uh, dyspnea, and exercise capacity. Um, and what Dr. Chelly was doing when he wrote this paper was not trying to guide transplant practitioners in, in what to do and how to prognosticate. He was trying to take uh, the pulmonary community forward and away from using the FEV1 alone as a sole method for prognosticating and risk stratifying um, people with COPD because that's really what the world was like in, in the time prior to this publication. You can see stage one, two, and three um, in terms of lung, these are FEV lung function stages alone and these are not, this is before gold even here. Um, it, it really didn't show a whole lot of discriminant capacity to determine who's going to survive that well. And then when you look at the, the bowed quartiles, it, it does a lot better job. And so that was really the purpose of that paper, and it did a good job. These are the components of Bode. FTV1 factors in there, and then the distance walk in six minutes. Uh, uh, the MMRC dyspnea scale that we already talked about briefly, and the body mass index can um, was, was probably overplayed in that. I think that there was a lot of uh, you know, the COPD cachexia, but it only gets you one point here. Um, and a key, a key thing to this is the Kaplan-Meier associated with the Bode study. You can see that this quartile 3 correlates to a Bode score of 5 or 6, and 7 or higher gives you quartile 4. These are the thresholds that were incorporated into the transplant guidelines back in 2006 that I showed you. And the reason here is that there's a, a median survival here uh, in the fourth quartile of about 3 years. And then 52 months is, is 4.3 years, I think, and, uh, and you can see the quartile 3 is coming in around there. So if you compare that to the post-transplant survival, this is better, right? I mean, here it is, and there's your median survival for the fourth quartile of the Bode, uh, um, according to the Bode quartiles in his, in his cohort. So it, it looks like you're adding this much life to these people somewhere, and so it, it, it sounds good, right? Yeah, everybody's agreeing. Um, and everybody agreed in the literature, too. So here's a, a, trans, a transplant review article uh, published current opinions of organ transplant. Oh, there's the Bode. Reemphasize it. Here's another review article. Oh, the Bode index shows up. Um, and then here's the update from the 2006 uh, <coughs> transplant guidelines. And again, it's emphasizing the Bode index there and the Bode index there, the timing of, of referral and listing, suggesting that, that this is, is, a, is a meaningful prognostic indicator. 
In fact, that, that gold guidelines that I, that I told you were so good, and I, I do think they're good if you're at all interested in COPD, it's worth the read. But here they are, again, suggesting the BODE as a, as a good way to prognosticate and identify the patients who are going to uh, have a survival advantage with transplant. In fact, there's so much enthusiasm for the idea that, that the survival with transplant uh, can be meaningfully compared to the Bode uh, uh, historic cohort. Um, here's a paper where what they did was they took some, some lung transplant patients and then they just they took each one, characterized them before transplant according to their Bode index and then came up with a predicted survival based on that and they concluded that a majority of COPD patients had an individual survival benefit regardless of their pre-transplant Bode score and a global benefit in the more severe disease and, and they also said this supports the use of Bode index as a selection criteria for lung transplant candidates which seems like circular logic to me. <laughs> you did it and then it, it worked in your paper so you should keep doing it. doesn't really make sense but um, it had, this journal has an impact factor of 7.6, so it cannot be wrong, right? Um, do we drink the Kool-Aid? Do we like that? Um, I love the little Kool-Aid guy, so there he is. Uh, uh, um, so technically, as a, as a historic interlude, um, does, do you guys know what drinking the Kool-Aid means? Because it, it's come to mean something different, I think, because we've forgotten the, the South American um, uh, massacre that it's named after. And it actually wasn't even Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid, because I guess it was cheaper. I don't know. But it was Flavor-Aid. It wasn't Kool-Aid at all. Uh, and yeah, it was laced with uh, potassium cyanide, and a whole bunch of people died. In fact, it was the, the largest uh, s single event of civilian casualties <clears throat> until September 11th of 2001. So that's kind of a downer. I'm going to just give you something to bring you back up. This is called a slow loris and they're cute. Uh, so now we feel better and I can move on. Um, so how, it, it, I think it's critically important to understand how and why people with COPD die. And if we can do that, we can have a better understanding of how best to determine whether we're adding, adding time to their lives by transplanting them. And there is a consistent trend, <clears throat> there's a consistent trend that um, in, in inhanes and a variety of different studies that we see that the worse your lung function is as measured by FTV1, um, the more likely you are to die of respiratory causes. Now, that makes sense. But uh, conversely, people with COPD uh, are more likely to die of the, the number one and two causes of death in the United States than the third cause of death in the United States. So they're not dying of COPD, they're dying of cardiovascular disease and cancer. And you can see that um, uh, directly here that the lower your FEV1 is, the higher your rates of cancer are, the higher your cardiovascular uh, mortality is, and there's a certain trend. Now understand that this cross-study comparison isn't perfect because the, the assessment of cause of death is not the same in each study and it gets a little wonky, but the trend is, is um, there. Um, yep, those are the two. And the contraindications to transplant are significant. You know, th this is, these are the contraindications from the most recent guideline update in 2014. And the big ones here are 
atherosclerotic disease and malignancy. And those are surprisingly the, the number one and two cause of death in our COPD patients. So if you had this patient, he could be entered into the Bode study and he could die on that in that cohort, but he couldn't be listed for a transplant. So the, the, the whole hypothesis here that we had that we explored in the UNOS data was that um, uh, was that it, uh, the Bode cohort has nothing to do. It doesn't work for the prognostication of transplant candidates with COPD. We looked at, um, well, the data I'm going to present you are that we looked at 1,500 COPD transplant candidates and we censored survival at transplant because post-transplant survival is different. Um, and we compared the results to the Chelly paper. And the hypothesis was that there would be better overall survival in the transplant candidates because you've weeded out the patients with a uh, heavy burden of comorbidities, including cancer and including uh, um, coronary disease. And you're going to have lower death rates attributable to comorbidities. Um, and here's what we got. The severity of the COPD in, in um, the different stages that were used in Shelley, here they are, uh, you know, he had uh, roughly similar percentages in the different FPV1 strata. Uh, whereas, whereas we didn't. We really had the, the worst of the lung function um, kind of oversampled, which makes sense. You would hope that people aren't transplanting a whole bunch of people for COPD that have a mild case of it. Um, and then we looked at the causes of death in the uh, limited to the, um, the people who died on the wait list with a, a, a reason listed as known. Um, if it was unknown, we, we didn't look at that. And, um, and respiratory causes of death were the majority in, in our cohort, um, with cardiovascular malignancy being much less uh, represented. Although Chelly's cohort uh, did have a lot of respiratory causes of death disproportionate to other cohorts um, that of, of a similar severity of COPD. And, uh, and then we just generated Kaplan-Meier. Uh, if patients were removed from the wait list for, um, uh, for reasons of being too ill uh, or um, deteriorating, something like that, we counted them as dying at that time. Um, and so there were probably some patients who were removed and then went on to live a few months and, and, uh, um, and, uh, and then dying. But, we counted them as dying right then. And this was our Kaplan-Meier with the 95% confidence intervals annoyingly sitting there. <laughs> I'm going to blame Mulligan for that. Um, and what you can see is that uh, if we compare it to the historic Bode experience, um, this is over a 52-month period, just like their Kaplan-Meier is, and they're very different. You know, this, uh, the, the fourth quartile at the end of the 52-month experience here is um, still not quite 50%, whereas at three years in the Bode uh, cohort, it was already at 50%. Um, so we thought that this is worthy of being published in the Journal of Duh. Um, hopefully, we'll get an impact factor higher than 7.6. That's what we're aiming for. And for that, I will break for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Any questions? Go back to show the, the numbers.
the numbers. Just, These numbers? Uh, no, 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 no. On your uh, 95 confidence slide. <laughs> the Kaffemeyer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just kind of, so the seeds are going to be 50% cut off. Is it what? So this, um, so this is 52 months, and this is about 50% survival in this fourth quartile. Whereas this is this is 52 months, and that would be, you know, quartile three was maybe getting about to the point of 50% in the Bode cohort, and that's even. I mean, if he had put his 95%, it would have been ugly because the numbers were smaller. Uh, going back to kind of the first part of your talk, where do you think Theophilin kind of falls in between the... Ah, so Theophilin. Um, the, the, uh, the gold guideline specifically talks about Theophilin, and I think it, it actually makes good points. And the, the idea behind Theophilin is that it does reduce, it, it does lead to some bronchodilation on top of the other therapies. It does reduce exacerbations. The therapeutic index is narrow and the toxicities are significant. And so it's something that you can use, um, but you, you shouldn't reach for it early. Um, Reflumolast is kind of the offline light, and you can think of it similarly. It's, um, it's something that's reasonable to consider if you have a chronic bronchitic kind of patient in particular. Um, uh, you know, if you, so if you have a patient and you're already on triple therapy, Lama, Laba, inhaled corticosteroid, they're class D and they're still having exacerbations, then you can look at comorbidities. Is it actually heart failure? Is it PE? Is it something else? Um, and it, if not, if it's real COPD exacerbations, you can look at your, your other therapies. Reflumolast is certainly one you can reach for. Um, chronic azithromycin therapy is one that's near and dear to our heart since we were part of that study. Um, but it's important to realize that the signal was completely missing uh, for azithromycin in smokers. So if you're an active smoker, there's just no data to support using azithromycin. The p-value was 0.98, and it just vanished in that subgroup. So do you think that, like, seeing this, do you think once you've got folks that are referred to a transplant center, maybe they get listed, at that point, well, I think I think we need to leave the Bode score behind because I, uh, Shelley's argument was that uh, if you take one measure of someone's like of someone's severity of illness, it's not going to work as well as four measures that have some independence in prognostication. And so now we have a lot more measures, a lot more data points. We have pulmonary pressures. We have, um, uh, you know, we have uh, bilirubins and creatinines and things we can all put into a model more like the LAS score. And the LAS score is, is kind of designed to predict your mortality on the wait list. And, um, and it would function much better. And a lot of transplant centers um, actually don't look at the Bode score they, they look at LAS scores, um, and I think that there are a few that, that probably keep the patients kind of circling, but they don't actually list them until they think that based on some other measures. So they've probably already evolved past the boat score, but we haven't really embraced it in the literature, and we haven't really uh, abandoned it, and we probably should. We have better measures, and, um, and there are other, other studies that are looking at better prognostic um, ways of predicting who would benefit, uh, who, who's a transplant candidate, yeah. 
you, for a transplant. Right. And once you've weeded out all the other stuff, because you really just can't, I mean, it's, it's, it's the old epidemiologic phenomenon of generalizability. It is just not generalizable to look at COPD patients that have not been screened for transplant versus those that have, because it really weeds people out and changes who they are. It is a very uh, selected population. There's referral bias, there's selection bias, and there's the screening. You know, it's just a totally different population. I'm, I'm trying to reconcile the implications of this last bit of information with the conventional transplant wisdom that obviously is somewhat old. That you can live longer without a transplant than with COPD. That your quality of life, should the transplant be successful and uneventful, will be remarkably better. And, and I wonder if it doesn't also have some bearing on the change in philosophy of listing, because that other statement, which I think was supported by summaries of patients in the, you know, in the past, came from lists that were long. Uh, and people sat there for quite a while. And now the list is considered to be a sort of a rapid listing, rapid transplant process where the, the slope for that is steep, but you don't enter the roller coaster ride until, you know, very late. And it gives you a, sort of a different flavor to the population that you're getting. Because there are lots of people who and another way to do this is to get to the point where people are offered transplant and compare the ones that walked away to the ones that got on the roller coaster and see who was one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a change in the listing philosophy. That, there is. And, and actually, so in, in this, I, I believe that this Kaplan-Meier represents uh, both the pre and post LAS experience, and when we, when we, our next step, we'll remove the pre LAS experience. Um, Seventy-five percent of the data here are post LAS, and so it's it, it's not going to dramatically change the um, the results. Uh, but it, it, and the reason that we're excluding the pre LAS is exactly that because the COPD patients used to be listed and then just watched and they wouldn't be transplanted uh, for a long time. And it's, it's probably less meaningful than looking at uh, what the current practice is. Our initial look at it here was thinking, well, you know, it's what we're primarily interested in is survival of these patients, um, uh, you know, without, without a transplant. Um, but they've already gone through the selection process and that really seemed to be uh, valid to look at pre and post LAS. Um, there, there might be a little lead time bias, a little, uh, a little bit of a healthy participant bias um, because of uh, the likelihood to list people earlier prior to LAS. So LAS was implemented in 2005 and before that uh, it was a first come first serve transplant offer uh, approach. So the longer you accrued time on the wait list, the higher you were on the wait list to receive uh, an organ. And so the healthiest so people would be listed way before they needed it, and then once they were alive on the list for a few years, someone would get a call and, and do you want an organ? They say, no, nah, I'm fine. And then they go to the second person, the third, the fourth, and by the time they get down the list far enough where somebody actually was willing to take the organ, it, the ischemic time was too long to give it away. And so they decided, this is silly, this is crazy, this might have worked for 
liver and, and kidney, but it doesn't work in the lung. So we'll uh, go to uh, a strategy called the lung allocation score, which is an objective score generated by a variety of different uh, factors that, um, including what is your indication for transplant. So COPD carries one of the lowest indications for a transplant. Almost all of the other uh, indications carry a, a higher weight with LAS because they know that COPD patients can live a long time without a transplant. And so the, uh, the, the lung allocation score implementation did affect uh, um, COPD patients, but probably to a less degree than interstitial lung disease. What we saw initially after the implementation was that the patients who were just popping up and dying and popping up and dying with IPF or other interstitial diseases um, were, were actually getting transplants. And so the waitlist uh, mortality dropped initially fairly dramatically, and now it's starting to catch up again as we kind of swamp the system. Um, but I don't know. That was a rambling discussion that allowed me to move on. No, I mean, it's just like, how do you say to patients? Oh. Because we would have said before you can live longer without it, but your quality of life is crap. Yeah, I think that, so that's... You can take your life back, but, you know, your alarm clock Yeah. That's a that's that's a valid point, you know, and the whole point of this this whole approach that we were taking was very much to inform that discussion with a patient. When you're looking at somebody and saying, "I think we can save your life with a transplant," or "I don't," um, and then there's also the discussion of how disabled are you by your lungs, and what does that mean for transplant? Because there is the argument that in a lot of these people, you're not giving them more uh, lives, but you're giving them more quality. So you still have more uh, some benefit in terms of quality adjusted life years, even if the life years are the same. Um, that's a, a little bit of a tough pill to swallow for such an expensive, invasive, risky maneuver if it's purely palliative. And uh, it's a little bit controversial along those lines. I'm sure there are a lot of people that would say, yeah, I can't do anything. I'm stuck at home. I have no life, even if I live five years with or five years without, transplant me now so I can walk around without this oxygen tank. And that's the answer you frequently get. I think if we do a better job of understanding who we're actually uh, prolonging the life in, we may be able to have a more intelligent discussion and sit down and say, I, I think you're somebody that we can give more and better life to. That's the whole, that's the holy grail of, of transplant. For pulmonologists, anyway, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I have a couple comments about the first part of it. Sure. The steroids. Yeah. So, number one, it seems like all of the lactose studies seem somehow to find the bronchitis. And yet, steroids are going to be more dramatic. And the Behringer studies seem to identify the symptoms of So, they're always somehow weighted. I can never quite figure that. The second thing is, uh, your detoxma, the one with the still ducts, right? So that's the OPD a lot column. She had a big series in, uh, from Northern Holland where they had a controlled trial, retrospective <coughs> review of their large COPD population. Northern Holland which is extremely stable because it's rural and it's farm country and nobody moves. And they have charts on the same patient going back 17 years in the local office. And she uh, did a, a reduction of the impact of steroids and showed that the group of long-term patients in Northern Holland who were left on 5 milligrams of prednisone a day actually did better. It wasn't such a bad thing. Yeah, and, and there are... There wasn't a 
there are actually as well there are some data that have not yet met the bar for us to say that we have sufficient confidence in them to to, to say that these that these therapies actually are disease altering therapies so currently we think of the uh, the inhaler medications all of them as uh, symptom managing but there are some data out there that suggests that we may be actually altering the disease course and those data need to be replicated before they are really um, I understand that Glaxo is betting the farm again they missed the boat on uh, their five-year ADVAIR trial but they doubled down they're doing a 3-0 trial internationally with twice as many patients trying to prove that it saves lives yeah yeah I think doubling down yeah We'll see. Yeah, should we? Yeah. You comment on the cause of death, particularly when it comes to cardiovascular deaths in, in your pre and post transplant patients. I know you're looking at that in terms of just uh, uh, thinking about you know, improved mobility, you know, post transplant equate hopefully improved cardiovascular, improved oxygen, you know. Um, uh, delivery of the myocardium you know, post-transplant, you think that that would translate to better cardiovascular outcome, potentially you know, anti-inflammatory, you know, uh, uh, potentially minimizing further atherosclerotic development. Like what, what have you uh, been able to tease out? Well, that that is a mess. So if you're if you're looking at um, post-transplant, the, the reduction, the post-transplant risk reduction of coronary disease, which um, you've already screened out a lot of the most severe patients, you've identified the patients that, that have it, and it's still a lot of the patients have some degree, most patients are going to have some degree of coronary disease. Um, in Transplant, there was a paper published, uh, I think Johnson, Bruce Johnson was the lead author, and it was just a retrospective case series um, from Pittsburgh, and um, Dr. Icona was on it, and it, it showed that there was uh, a reduced rates of um, of uh, rejection, acute rejection associated with statin use. And so we don't have better data to drive us. Um, so we give all patients a statin. Everybody's on a statin. And you know, the rates of uh, coronary issues or, or deaths after uh, a transplant are not insignificant. There's kind of a baseline um, rate. I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it's small but substantial contribution to the post-transplant risk. Um, the problem that you're going to have in the transplant realm into looking at medical approaches and things like that is that you've got cardiac surgeons in the mix and they are plumbers man they love to open those things up and they have a uh, they come from a whole different school of thought than, um, than the schools of thought uh, that a lot of the, the medical realm and the cardiology realm are coming from in terms of expectations around revascularization outside the setting of acute coronary syndrome. Um, and whether it's right or wrong is darn hard to study. And it's a messy signal in there. Well, with this trial, you, were there significant outcomes that were considered death among the falls? Well, yeah, so there was, you know, there was just unknown. Um, and, you know, in, in this data set, or in this Kaplan-Meier, even if they were just removed from the wait list uh, for sickness or deterioration or, or anything like that, we called that death right then. Um, when I, so when I tabulated, 
when I tabulated causes of death, I only tabulated the causes of death that were known causes of death. So if somebody dropped dead uh, for PE or something out there and, and it, the information was totally unknown to the data set, then I just didn't include that. Um, if you did that, it would be coronary disease would be one of the leading causes of death. <laughs> And it's probably, there may be a little bit of a bias in there, but it's, it's likely a primarily non-differential kind of thing, because I think a lot of it, if somebody had a heart attack and then just went to an outside hospital and it wasn't the transplant center, they may not know why the patient died. And, and when they enter into the you know, forms reporting, uh, they just might not have it available. Uh, I, can't, I can't know what the data were that weren't reported. You can speculate that it, it might be um, more PEs and more things like that. Yeah. So I mean, the same would potentially happen with other data sets as well. Yeah. I don't know what sensitivity analysis could do there. The, I wouldn't know which sensitivity analysis to take. Anybody else? Thanksgiving begins.